iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Ruck. From the Times and the Sunday Times, I'm Will Kelleher, and you're welcome for that, by the way, dear listeners, because I've braved the elements to make it here for you. No Waterloo service, packed tubes, I've swished across the slushy streets of Southwark, on foot, on foot, everyone, to make it. And with me is another brave explorer, our Saran Alfines, who was just thawed out from the Swansea.com last night. Times reporter Elgin Alderman, welcome. Hello there. Hello, how are you? Have you? How was Leicester? Uh, how was Le- Swansea, really? Swansea.com Stadium was chilly. Sadly, only about a quarter full. Not not a great thing you want to see on a Sunday night. But, uh, yes, yeah, so at about 10pm, I left the Turkish kitchen after a lovely uh, sheesh, <laughs> half and half, chips and rice. It was a lovely way to finish the day. And then 7am on the, my three-hour train from Swansea, and here I am. Look at that, the efforts we're making to produce the ruck for you today. And Stuart Barnes has made the most effort of everyone because he's gone into his, what, West Wing... In his house, <laughs> <laughs> Stuart, are you right? How is it? it must be toasty in uh, Wiltshire. It, the, the, the West Wing's about fifty feet from the bedroom. It, it's, <laughs> it's been quite a walk, and I, I did feel that. I know you boys have been um, moving around, especially Elgin. So I thought I'd go down to the village post box and post a couple of Christmas cards. Walking the snow, so I'm feeling pretty fit and raring to go. Can you get out? Are you snowed in? Uh, we can get out, but with my driving skills as they are, I'll probably <laughs> wait until the thaw sets in. Okay. Also, for anyone who's listened to the last few rucks, and we've mentioned the Christmas reindeer at the News UK office, there's a big breaking news on the Christmas reindeer. Who are those ones that are automatronic and sing Christmas carols relentlessly throughout the day? They've they've lost their England flag. Oh, it's sad, isn't it? They had a Welsh one and an English one to start with. The Welsh one got whipped off quite quickly. And then the England one's gone too. So that's the reality hitting home of England's football World Cup exit. But so there does, you go. Does the reindeer have a French flag now? Uh, yeah, or Moroccan, or, Moroccan or Croatian. No, they, they're, they're bare. They're naked reindeer at the moment, but they're singing oh, away. Well, well f- four years ago, obviously, when it was still a, a summer World Cup, they put a big England flag on the outside of the building. Oh, and it covered the Times sports desk section of the building. <laughs> so it was just like we were in a, a completely red room while right. we were working. It, it was horrible. <laughs> the red light district. It was Let's horrible. Yeah, yeah. So, right, everyone, we've had weekend. Where were you, Barnsley, by the way? You Gloucester again. You, you're resident in the shed at the moment. Yeah, I was. The Gloucester staff are very welcoming. Nobody knows me at Bath anymore because I'm an old git. But at Gloucester, they seem to remember me. So it's a, there's always a nice warm welcome there. And uh, it wasn't a great game this week, but norm- the last few games I've been, it's been pretty good. So well, we'll get into loads on this this podcast today. We'll look back at the Champions Cup this weekend. Um, Northampton Saints flanker, Lewis Ludham joins us. It's great to have him on. Uh, they lost to Larachelle at the weekend and host Munster this coming Sunday. But we'll talk about a bit of Eddie Jones, a bit of Steve Borthwick possibilities. Because the big news happened after we'd recorded the pod last week, but last Tuesday, Eddie Jones was sacked as England head coach. Wayne Pivak also gone, which we just about got onto in last week's podcast. But we'll go through a bit of that with Stuart and Elgin here, and we'll name our god or goddess of the week as usual. But I suppose we should start with a bit of Eddie Steve chat. 
from the Swansea.com. Steve Borthwick, he, he chapter and verse pretty much about why he wants the England job, who he's taking with him. It must have been brilliant to listen to all that, Elgin, for, for hours after the game. Well, if you'd, if you'd ever like to know what a thesaurus of different ways to saying no comment is, that's uh, <laughs> you need to be with Steve Borthwick right now because it is either rugby's worst-kept secret or most circulated lie that he is going to be yeah. the next England head coach. Yeah. And so inevitably, every time he speaks, it's, so, Steve, anything new? And he's moved on from a couple of no comments in the week last night. It was very much similar theme after the match. It was, it would be disrespectful to the competition, to the Heineken Champions Cup, for us to be discussing international matters. And he gestured to Hannah Liebenberg, his Leicester captain next to him, and said, I want to talk about the effort that they've put in. So nothing new from him, but I suppose short of saying, no, I'm not going to be it, or yes, I am going to be it, I suppose that's that's all he can say for now. That's yeah. all he wants to say. It's one of those, isn't it? I was on the, the the call on Friday, which had been postponed from Tuesday because that was the day that Eddie did get sacked and Steve Borthwick was meant to be up for a, an EPCR press conference, which they have to do contractually to tee up the week, which is fair enough. But they postponed it till Friday and that was the, the 24 minutes of not saying a lot. But he's in a bit of an impossible position, Stuart, isn't he? Now we're... He, everyone kind of knows that he's going to be the English coach, but he can't really talk about it. He's he's the last person in the world who will try and distract himself from the, a game on the weekend. But because there's this delay in the gap between Eddie and Steve, what's he meant to say, really? Like, he can't preempt it. He's not the sort of guy who would... Is it high time the RFU made a big decision this week? I've got sympathy for Steve Borthwick here. He's a taciturn bloke anyway, but he's absolutely right. He is coach of Leicester. He should be talking about those things. He shouldn't be talking about the England situation now. And whilst it's very frustrating for us in the media, he walks the line and he's walking it absolutely correctly at the moment. And, you know, and I hope he continues with it. I'm not concerned about Steve Borthwick having to come out with pyrotechnic comments if and when when, let's say, he becomes England coach. We've had enough of that. We've had enough of the focus being on the on the coach giving quotes, distracting perhaps others from what's going on the pitch. Let's judge Steve Borthwick by what his Leicester are doing and what his England will do on the pitch. So just to kind of try and surmise where we think we're at with the England situation. So Eddie was sacked last Tuesday after a couple of meetings with the RFU. He's still in the country, it seems, but there's word from Australia that they want him. Um, Hamish McLennan, their chairman over there, is pretty keen to get him back, it seems. So we'll, we'll keep tabs on that one because that could be a fascinating subplot with England possibly playing Australia at the quarterfinal of the next World Cup. That'd be unbelievable, wouldn't it, if he was in the other coaching box? Um, so he's gone, as we know. Um, the RFU don't have a confirmed replacement yet, as we've just been saying. Steve Borthwick looks likely to be the man. Um, they made a formal approach to Leicester Tigers on Tuesday afternoon after they'd got rid of Eddie last week and now I think we're in the stage of negotiations basically which hadn't started as of the end of last week because Leicester are essentially waiting to hear who's coming whether it's um, just Steve Borthwick or whether it's the assistant coaches as well so there's going to be a negotiation on that but we're not there but I think the feeling at the RFU is that they need to press on because nature abhors a vacuum I think is the phrase and the longer they leave it, the longer it will take. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you, Will, do we assume Eddie has been paid off his period in lieu of work? So the situation with Eddie is that he has not signed a no-compete clause in his contract, so that means he can take any job he wants immediately. Some teams or countries might have put in a clause that meant that he was 
not able to work for the duration of what was left of his contract, but they haven't signed him with one. That would have been all part of the the compensation package that he'll no doubt get. So if he wanted to be in the Rugby Australia building tomorrow and get on the QF1 down to Sydney, then he could. He could. I mean, that's that's pretty serious, isn't it? Because even if Eddie Jones wasn't working in an official capacity for Australia, the knowledge he has of a large part of England in terms of personnel, perhaps not playing star by the time the World Cup comes, it is hugely significant and a major advantage uh, when you consider that England have a, a pretty fair chance of of coming up against Australia at yeah. quarter final stage. Yeah, well, that that would be a fascinating narrative. But so, yeah. Elgin, what was the because the whole thing around Leicester is interesting now, isn't it? Because we kind of think that Steve Borthwick's going to go. He, he's very likely to take guys with him, possibly. Alad Walters, the the fitness guru, the sort of S&C guy, and he's the kind of yin to the yang. Kevin Sinfield, the defence coach, is touted as well. Richard Wigglesworth, possibly. But they didn't seem to have that kind of fog around them at the game, did they? Absolutely not. And if anyone wondered if Steve Borthwick has clocked out already, I saw him walk down the steps right from the top where the coaches were sitting to stand in the technical area and hurl an earful of presumably abuse at his team or constructive abuse, I'm sure, during the first half of last night's match against Ospreys when they were losing and not playing well. And then after half time, they came out and they won the match and they did it with a massive experience disadvantage to their opponents who had more than 600 caps uh, from 11 Wales internationals. In, uh, Leicester had left out, you know, he'd left out Freddie Stewart, he'd left out Ben Youngs, Chris Ashton, Julian Montoya. Anthony Watson was the elder statesman in the back line. Hannah Liebenberg was leading a, a young team and in a not great game, in not great conditions, they won. So they are still, for now anyway, doing the job required of them. And we always are going to read things into how Leicester perform until he leaves, aren't we? But they managed to solve it on the field because their scrum was going nowhere. They couldn't win a line-out for a bit either, but they managed to win the game, which is quite impressive for a young team. Joe Hayes had perhaps one of the uh, least memorable games of his, his fledgling career thus far. He was... Taken, uh, taken to the cleaners, really, by Nicky Smith, uh, the Ospreys' loose head prop. And Joe was yellow-carded after 37 minutes and then didn't come back on 10 minutes later, which I think is a sign of just how badly the scrum was going. But then, yes, they came out, they scored two tries in the in the third quarter of the match. And, you know, Anthony Watson's solo score was one of the, the best solo scores of the weekend. And what an opportune time to do it as well when we are looking at players that are looking to put their hands up for this new era. What did you make of them, Stuart, the, the, Le- the Leicester team? Well, I'll tell you who I want to talk about, a bloke who wasn't involved at all, Dan Cole. Mm. Leicester Leicester built their championship team around a very solid set piece. Uh, And Cole's got into a a good habit of conceding far fewer penalties than he used to. Now, what I was saying, an England squad member was taken to the cleaners. Uh, Cole wasn't there. In his absence, Leicester's scrum really struggled. And I've been watching his game uh, last season and this season He's more mobile than he's ever been, which may not be saying a great deal, but he certainly is. People are saying, yeah, well, he's 35 and he had a bad World Cup final. Are we seriously going to say that if you're over 30 and and you had a bad game, you're done forever? Because he wasn't the only bloke who had a bad World Mm. Cup final, yet he seems to have been absolutely binned. Yet in Leicester, he's central to their game. This was a game where I think Ospreys were favourite to win because Dan Cole wasn't involved in the 23 
which week in Leicester where they were strong. Yeah, well, it's going to be so fascinating the next few months and when we get into January with whoever the England coach is because so many people who are sort of discarded and thought to be nowhere near it can completely come back. I mean, why would you not, especially if you've got a short run to the World Cup, why would you not select people like Joe Marler and Dan Cole and guys like Anthony Watson and then all sorts of others like Ollie Lawrence and Ben Earl and Dan Kelly and all sorts of others get, come into the mixture, don't they? So, it's, yeah, it's going to be fascinating. But I tell you what, why don't we pause for now and then get back into a bit of Champions Cup action because there were loads of other games across two continents for the first time. So after this, we'll talk about those. Right, so the Champions Cup, we teed it up last week as a dual continental thing, European, African. And I didn't actually go to a game on the weekend. I watched fair bit of it back to back to back to back on the telly and for the sort of sofa viewer it's actually quite cool because you get loads of games in all sorts of different places and different teams you don't watch all the time but what do we make of the structure Stuart it's it changed well it's actually the same as last season albeit with South African teams but yeah. it get, it takes well, a while to get going doesn't it even though we've had a good it, weekend it's just going to be it, April it, until we're really interested isn't it yeah, and for fans you need, you need uh, simplicity and when you had six pools of four Everyone knew two teams went through from each, two best runners-up. was quite clear. The system now where we've got two pools of 12, I have to go back and look at it and just sort of say, right, where are we now? There's no nothing definitive. An away win isn't definitive. A home defeat isn't definitive now. Two wins and a draw can get you through. And you're thinking, what does this mean? And because of that, you don't have a sense of knockout, even though the pools aren't knockouts, but they're closer. And you get smaller crowds because fans realise that if they get through to the last 16, their team will go flat out. And they realise this because so many of the teams being picked in the, in the first couple of rounds, certainly this week and certainly next week, um, were a long way from full strength. Um, the, the English, South Africans, French, all sent very weakened teams out in in large numbers and that's a massive problem because this tournament has to start with a bang but but I you know I heard Steve Borthwick before the game in Swansea saying you know premiership's a tough tournament we've got to focus on that I've got to make a decision he made a decision and just like Bordeaux last year he went with a weakened team and won and credit to him and Leicester mm. for that but what it can't do it can't help with the crowd because the Swansea crowd um, aren't going to see the stellar likes of, of Dan Cole playing. And, and what was the cost? Uh, Jallybear, great. And then Thursday, I thought, let's start looking at this team and doing some research. Bordeaux had about 10 of their, their players mm. missing. And Gloucester felt a lot less atmospheric for the visit of Bordeaux, big European club, than they did a week earlier for the visit of Northampton, who they play quite regularly. Yeah. And the crowd was 2,000 less. What was the crowd at Swansea, Elgin? There was no uh, official attendance announced, but I was shown that a figure that I think 5,428 right. tickets have sold. That might have just been sort of Osprey-specific tickets. But either way, that is a, a quarter of the attendance. Yeah. I yeah. think... A few years ago, we were talking about the press box afterwards, there was a, a Leicester Ospreys game that ended 32-all. Obviously, it wasn't on a Sunday night, so it was a better time of the weekend, better conditions. 
but I think the attendance for that was double what what, what mm. we had last night. Um, so yeah, obviously, you know, I, and I will be taking Will to task after this podcast for the use of the word rubbish regarding my beloved Wales. But <laughs> there is no doubting that the Welsh regions are not having a great time at the moment. Cardiff are doing okay. The Dragons are actually slightly resurgent, but Ospreys have won one game out of nine in in the URC. They're they're fourteenth in the table, so. They might have 600-odd caps, but they have not been playing well this year, yeah, um, yeah. which will obviously have an impact on attendances for Welsh regional games, which have always been a big negative talking point in many ways since regional rugby was brought in. So yeah. that, that's almost that's a problem in and of itself. <laughs> and I suppose, I think organisers at EPCR will be desperate to see better crowds in South Africa. I mean, the, the Kings Park game where Harlequins almost staged an unbelievable comeback against the Sharks, but didn't quite get there in the end. That looked pretty empty. But the problem there they've got is they're um, absolutely enormous stadiums, aren't they? And it's it's a whole new thing. They, they're, I mean, I was, we were chatting to John Dobson on the podcast last week and he's told us at other times that there are certain teams, maybe Harlequins are one, that they would bring a bit more cachet, but they're just not au fait with them. Or I don't know, it's one of those where I think if they get to a semi-final or a, or a quarter-final and it's played in South Africa, then you might see the growth. But... It just doesn't quite feel the same as those days that you used to sit in the, the Sky commentary box, Stuart, with all those Heineken Cup g- glorious days. Well, it, it was the European, it was the Heineken European Cup, and it can't be that now. And it doesn't have an identity. And in South Africa, it's, it's one of the world's great rugby countries. But uh, essentially, traditionally, it has been about uh, the Bulls when, when it was Western Province, and Western Province became the Stormers and Natal became the Sharks, that understood this. And then they grew into their great 100-year-plus rivalry with New Zealand with Super Rugby. And you had the Crusaders, and you had the Blues, uh, and you had the Waratahs from Australia. That's what they know. They don't know the English stuff. And John Dobson, I thought, was very honest in saying it will take a while. I, I don't think no matter what the South Africans do this year, there will be huge crowds Tournaments have to have some sort of identity. And uh, Elgin, I, I, I wonder, this links to the Welsh support numbers as well, because I grew up in Wales, there was Swansea and there was Neath. The amalgam was not an identity. And when they became a franchise team, it didn't work. And it hasn't really worked because Swansea was so strong. Sport has tradition and it has a, a tight-knit, I think, communal feel i don't know what do you feel about that you you mentioned the the, the problems of regional rugby there when I, when regional rugby came in i was a 10 year old newport fan that used to go down to rodney parade mm. and watch newport games and i certainly felt closer to newport than i did to the dragons when they came and i think the feeling at the yeah. time was that newport fans thought the dragons wasn't newport enough and uh the rest of Gwent thought it was too Newport, so in a way, sort of, no, no one had, uh, no one had been sated by that. But you do dragons this season are now called Dragons RFC, which is obviously a subtle shift, but they are sort of marketed now as as a club. Cardiff are now just Cardiff. Obviously, uh, yeah. Scarlets have always just been Finetti. The Ospreys is still that combination of Neath and Swansea, but playing out of yeah, Swansea.com Stadium. Obviously, the, the crowd size they have. It does feel not great when you're in a twenty thousand seater stadium and five six thousand people there. I've I've been to Padica Scarlets on a on a Friday night when Dragons have played Scarlets there, and it does feel a bit soulless. Cardiff went to Cardiff City Stadium, came back to Cardiff Arms Park, so that was a good move back for them. And 
yeah, it's uh, it's a problem that Welsh rugby is still having that they hoped they'd solved in 2003, but uh, almost 20 years later, people are still having the same arguments. Yeah. So, Stuart, just on a quick one, we'll move on to some of the actual runners mm. and riders and results and whatever. What's the solution? I've My one that I think I've mentioned in the pod before in terms of restructuring the Champions Cup, and it might actually happen because of the fact that the Premiership is basically going to be 10 teams or so from 24 onwards, is... I think a 16-team Champions Cup would be great. Five from each of the three leagues, plus the winners of the challenge from the year before, back to four pools of four. I think the the ship sailed on the whole South African thing, them joining, now they're in the URC, so you can't really row back on that. But what would what would you do to revamp the Champions Cup? Well, like you, I'd make it slightly more elite, so I wouldn't have as many members. I'd make it more cutthroat in the pool stages, uh, and then get to quarter semis and finals. So I, 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 effectively, I'm, I hate doing this, but I'm in, endorsing what you're saying. It has to be higher standard from the start. It just has to stand out a level above. I, did you see Antoine Dupont's mm. comment uh, before the week? You know, no, what he, did he say then? No, young, I didn't. Young, young, he said, as a young man, I, I grew up with the... the Heineken Cup, the European Cup. But and of course, uh, you know, he was born in the Toulouse cast area. First ever winners were Toulouse. Toulouse. It's no coincidence, Toulouse of all the French teams are the ones who bleed for Europe, perhaps more even now than the top 14. And that's because it's this tradition within mm. Toulouse again. Uh, and he was just, and he was saying he doesn't think it works with South African teams because it diversifies too much. And, and I think that's the problem uh, you know, we're always talking in this world, be it economics or sport, about growing things. Sometimes you've got to shrink things, make it more competitive, make the rivalry greater. You can't have a derby between uh, Natal Sharks and the Scarlets. You never will. That can't happen. So we've got to find a way to just make it tighter. And and if that means there are three South Africans in it, I, I, oh, the other thing is, I think at pool stage, this thing about, uh, clubs from the same country not playing each other is wrong. If they get drawn with each other, that's good because that gives the early stages of the tournament mm. a, ma- a major lift that, that is, you feel it's lacking. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's go on to some of the, the games. Um, there were some mixed results for the French and some quite alarming ones where, for example, Racing 92 got absolutely thrashed by mm. Leinster in Le Havre, didn't they? Um, you had Montpellier beating London Irish come back there you watched Bordeaux lose to Gloucester Lyon had a basketball style game against the Bulls where it's 42-36 we'll get on to La Rochelle thrashing Northampton with Lewis Ludlam in a bit and Toulouse beat Munster but do we still think that the French game's the strongest Elgin do you think that's that's where it's happening at the moment absolutely I've I like to go on an annual trip to sample French rugby we do four games in four days because Having the Pro 14, uh, sorry, the Top 14 rather, and uh, the Pro Day Deux, you've got those two 14 teams, team leagues. In the second division, you've got teams that have previously been champions of France, fully professional. You've got a third tier that's quite professional as well in, in many ways. Uh, well, I think it is fully professional on, on the way to being fully professional anyway. Fourth tier, sometimes you get quite a professional setup. Uh, I went to a four-tier game in Mazame and they had a former Tonga 2007 fullback playing for them <laughs> uh, t- towards the latter stages of his career. And you do get, you know, we went to the, the Prode de top of the table clash and it was a sellout crowd on a Friday night. Uh, you go to, we went to Cast Toulouse, obviously, which is top 14. That was obviously a great sellout as well. 
You've got teams like Bezier with so much history playing in the second division. It is certain. It certainly does feel like at the moment they have two divisions that can rival any other top division you know, around the world in terms of its competitiveness and its history and how much people are enjoying it and watching it uh, in person and, and on television. Yeah, Stuart, we know your long-standing fanboy of Jonathan Dalton. You wrote about him in the Times again today in a sort of England context, but that La Rochelle performance against Northampton was pretty dominant and pretty impressive, wasn't it? I don't know how much you saw of it, but he was oh, a hell yeah, of a player. All, yeah, yeah, I don't tend to write about it. Uh, a player who hadn't watched the entire game. Good grief! Yeah, no, I, 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 I relished watching that match. That was a, that's the first game I watched Sunday morning, and they have. Uh, I said in the paper today, La Rochelle are like France. They've got power uh, up in the front row. I didn't even mention uh, Aldrich. They have got a focus uh, in in Dante, and and they've got footballers. Um, they look very, very strong. Uh, I know it was a Northampton didn't take their full team, and their full team isn't a great team. Let's be honest. But La Rochelle were in their own way uh, as formidable as Leinster, whose demolition of Racing really caught the eye. But Racing went to sleep, and those two look um, very powerful, very powerful. And, and to answer your question that you asked earlier about, do you think the French are the team to beat? You know, it was it was a fog-bound Toman Park and, and still only five teams have won there in the history of the European Cup. And whilst mm. Munster might not be great in their own domestic league at the moment, they have a history in that tournament and they always pull something out. And that was a good win for Toulouse and it puts them in pole position. And, and you look at the strength of their squad as well. I, I think definitely at the moment the, the French are the teams to beat. Uh, the South African teams, if, if they were to get one of the big guns at home in a quarter final, would be very interesting. But I just think the French teams will make sure that they're they're at the top of their draws and they're going to be playing at venues that suit them and they'll yeah. take some beating. Among the English teams, there are a couple of marquee results. I mean, particularly Sale, who are unbelievably good, 39-0 win over Ulster, who've um, had a good couple of years as well and went deep in the last European Cup. I mean, you think... That's a marquee result. And um, Rob Baxter last week, Exeter was saying that if you get an away win, you can blow the tournament wide open and get people to sit up and take notice. And they did exactly that in cast. 27-12, they won. Quinn's lost, didn't they? Gloucester won. Um, and Saracens, Owen Farrell was seething about how they played, it looked like, on the telly yesterday. But they won as well. So where's the strongest English challenge, do we think? Is it is it Saris as ever, Elgin, do we think? I think probably just because, like you say, they have that that pedigree. They've they've won the competition before. They, you know, just one narrow win over Edinburgh doesn't doesn't lead to the end of their chances. You'd expect them to to provide a good challenge when it comes to it. The extra winning cast is notable because, like I say, I've I've been to cast. It is a great place to watch rugby. The atmosphere is superb. So to go there and win by fifteen, now that. Having said that Saracens scraping past Edinburgh doesn't rule them out, at the same time, Exeter winning by that match against Cast does kind of rule them in as, as as contenders, I'd say. In terms of the the French sides, I think we should look at that win for Montpellier. I spoke to Zach Mercer in the week, who's obviously mm. the uh, the English resident in Montpellier. They seem to have two more replacing him as he comes back to Gloucester. But uh, he was saying that having won the top 14 last year, Europe is a big focus for them. Mm. And... 
to win that opener. Yes, London Irish were back in the competition for the for the first time in many years, so th- there will be bigger bigger challenges to come. But for Zach Mercer to get Player of the Match and for them to win, you know, they're a, they're one of the teams to look out for that that hasn't won this competition before. Uh, you mentioned Player of the Match. I always wonder what the guys do with those. I think they call it the Star of the Match. Those trophies. Does someone like Zach Mercer just have like a whole shelf full of them? I don't know. <laughs> I always wonder when it gets announced uh, over the the tannoy during a game what what the player is thinking when they yeah. hear it. Do they think? Yes, I've done well today. Or did, yeah. or did they know it was coming? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Well, it's like, well, who's the guy who can speak English in the French team that we can get on the telly? Well, but- to be honest, after 25 years, I had an executive producer called Martin Turner who'd say, can you go for an English-speaking Frenchman? <laughs> and I'd say, no, I will go for the best player. He'd say, all right, can you go for someone on the winning side? And I would go, no, I will go for the best player. I'd and in a way, it was almost puritanical, my belief you pick the best player on the pitch. Yeah. But I do get fed up that you get uh, someone who is linguistically useful. Uh, or, <laughs> or a newsworthy the player, player sometimes. On the pitch and they won. I mean, I, that, that Montpellier game, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Elgin, because I think Montpellier, it, it was a very useful win for them. And I, I'd say Montpellier, Toulouse, La Rochelle and Leinster are the four real contenders. But I, I was going to say on that game... Zach Mercer got man of the match, but I tell you now, Juan Martin Gonzalez, who went off with concussion, 20 from the end, was absolutely outstanding, was the best player on the pitch. Um, uh, But he couldn't get it because they lost the game. So there's another round of Champions Cup coming up this weekend, and Stuart, you're going down to Sandy Park, are you? Just a quick thought on that one. They're playing the Bulls, which is going to be very interesting, going back up to altitude in January, aren't they? Yeah, I'd reiterate Elgin's comment. It's a very good win. I was watching that game and, and they muscled that well. Uh, my God, Dave Ewers is a star for that club. Fantastic. Yeah. Him and Sam Simmons were, were, were brilliant. And I think they'll put the Bulls away with another five-pointer because the Bulls will not enjoy coming down to a, a cold day in Devon. Uh, and they'll think, having got five points, they can get out of the pool stage with another home win and nick a point somewhere so I would think Exeter should win that with with something to spare it's a really good start because uh, they can use their squad now they've got Hogg playing well again too I'm expecting Exeter to win well but I don't think Exeter quite have um, the power up front anymore to trouble the French and maybe the that extra bit of all-round magic to, to test a Leinster team who are going to go very close. Yeah, yeah. Well, next weekend there's loads of fixtures, but a smattering of interesting ones. Leinster, Gloucester on the Friday night. Um, you've got Exeter Bulls, which Barnsley will be at. Leon Saracens, Leicester Claremont, which we'll see whether Steve Borthwick's in the coaching box or not. He said he would be, but it's always things change, don't they? Yeah, Harlequins Racing on the Sunday would be an interesting one. And then we'll talk about next, uh, Northampton, because they're playing Munster. They've got roundly beaten in La Rochelle but up next we'll speak to their back row and Captain Lewis Ludlam following that defeat and looking forward to the Munster game as well Right so now on the podcast we're delighted to be joined by Northampton Saints Captain Lewis Ludlam Lewis how are you? Have you managed to get back from La Rochelle all all right? Yeah yeah, all alright thank you very much for having me it's good good to be on the podcast Yeah thanks for coming on um Look, should we start with the game itself? I mean, I, I suppose, very disappointed about, at the result. How do you kind of assess what, what went wrong out there for you guys? God, it was, I think it was just a, a compounding of errors for us. We, I think going into the game, we were really excited. Um, emotionally, it felt like we were in the right space. It just felt like on the day, every mistake we made 
um, they capitalised on, which is which is what it's like at that level against the the, the reigning champs. They're going to take the opportunities when you give them to them, and, and we gave them too many, unfortunately. Was it a physicality thing that you you'd think you lacked, or what was it a technical tactical thing that you didn't get right in that first half, particularly? Um, it's, it's probably more of a, a, a technical thing. I think we 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 cough the ball up um, well, way too much. Um, got charged down, um, but it's it, it's basically at that at that level. It's it's test rugby, and in test rugby, you make a mistake and you pay the price for it. So that's what it felt like from all the reviews from watching it back today. That's that seems like the problem. It's hard to pin down one thing, but I think physically we were there. It was just a. We're under so much pressure. We're giving away so many penalties um, and allowing them into our twenty-two way too often. What What are you going to have to fix then for Munsters? As you say, it's kind of almost like another test match coming, and they pride themselves on their scrum, more physicality as well. Graham Rouchy, the coach there, is no no stranger to all those areas of the field, is he? Yeah, not at all. I think for us, definitely this week is is how quickly we can wrestle back momentum. Um, it feels very much like we wait one mistake. Um, in a game and teams run away and, and score straight away. So when things don't go to plan, how do we wrestle back momentum to get ourselves back into the game and back in top and gives us the best fighting chance to get our game going again rather than having an error, conceding a try and then letting momentum get away from us. I think that's a, that's going to be the key improvement this week. Mm. How much do you enjoy these Champions Cup sort of weeks and fortnights where the, the focus changes a bit? It's been a funny old competition over the last few years, hasn't it? Because it's changed formats a fair bit. We've got South Africans in now, haven't we? As players, what does it mean to you in a, in a sort of Champions Cup week? What does it fire in your belly? Yeah, it's, it's, there's just a little something extra. I think the excitement of going away and, and, and leaving the country and, like I say, the excitement to play against some of the best teams in Europe and South Africa now as well. You really are challenging yourself at the top level of the game and, these are the games you see where you're at. And even at the weekend, it's interesting to see when the games got away from us, who out of your mates is willing to go, I'm not bothered. I'm going to stick my hand up and put my head in the spokes for the rest of the team. And that's where, that's where you find out what you're made of. Um, so we find out what sort of team you are. And that's where you establish your culture and, you, and your closeness as well. So on a multitude of levels, I think it's a really exciting couple of weeks. And we know now it's pretty much knockout rugby for us um, mm. because we, we, we need we need to win the rest of our, our three group games to, to give ourselves the best chance of going through, really. Yeah. How are you feeling about your own game? Because you had a little injury, didn't you? You missed the, the England stuff over the autumn. How are you? How's your body? Have, have you recovered fully and all that? Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, feeling good now. Um, I think it was uh, really disappointing not to to be involved and pick up that niggle right at the right at the start of that camp. Um, however, I think it was a good window to get my whole body right, to get myself in a good place, to go for what's really important year for club and for country as well with um, a new coach potentially, uh, Big Six Nations coming up and us being alive in all competitions still um, with, a, with, a new, with a new club coach too. Um, it's a really important year that that we need to get right. So as quickly as we can get back on top of things, body-wise, physically, I think that was a really good period for me to to get back into the swing of things, really. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned the change of coach there. I mean, obviously, it's been quite a big week of rugby news with Eddie Jones losing his job um, last Tuesday. What was your initial reaction to that? I mean, everyone, I think quite a lot of players were sort of shocked that it happened. I mean, when you saw that news flash up on your phone or whatever, what was your initial take? Oh, I was gutted. I was gutted because... 
Eddie for me, someone who gave me my opportunity. I don't necessarily agree that it was the right decision, but I think it was the nature of the way public pressure is set up now. Well, for me, it was, like I say, really disappointing. I think so close to a World Cup as well. I think my initial reaction to it was obviously frustration. However, looking back on it, I think it's important we understand, even though it's it's not an ideal time to lose a coach, I think it's un- important to understand what Eddie has given English rugby mm. um, over the last six, seven years. I think what he's contributed has been has been absolutely unbelievable. So I think there've been a lot of press, a lot of people talking about why should he should not should he not have gone. But what I'd like to see more emphasis on is what he has achieved and what he has done for English rugby, which I think is is unbelievable. And for me as a player, um, the way he's developed me and given me the opportunity is something I can I can never repay really. Yeah, I was going to say on on that debut in 2019, just before that World Cup. What do you remember of those first few caps and how he sort of inspired you to play? Well, I think he just took the, took the pressure off me. That first, my very first meeting going in, I sort of played for one season consistently and hadn't played before that. So I think when I got into camp, there were a few lads like didn't really know what I was about, who I was. And he was the first one to highlight that and say, does anyone know who this guy is? And everyone was like, a little bit, not really, sort of. And he's like, yeah, well, me neither until three weeks ago. <laughs> now he's here and he's here to work hard. So... I think for him to say that was a, a, an interesting trick for him to go, oh, no one knows who I am. I can take the pressure off me. Nothing is expected of me. All I can do is go in, enjoy it, work hard and, and see where it gets me. And for him to take the pressure off me in that way, I think was was, was genius and something that helped me helped me go really well in that, those first couple of months in camp, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. It's so fascinating with Eddie because he, he inspires so many different reactions from different people who know him in completely different ways. And there are loads of players. I mean, Owen Farrell, after the Saracens game, was saying how gutted he was that he'd gone. And I'm sure lots of people share that opinion. But there are others too who found it quite a tough environment and all that. Did you did you see that with other players, that it was quite mentally and physically kind of un- uncompromising? Eddie never made any excuses for that, did he, that he'd work you guys hard? Yeah, but uh, yeah, definitely I think... You you go either way, I think, with 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 Eddie and with other coaches as well. I mean, culture is an interesting thing in sport and it's almost impossible to, to please everyone and get a culture that fits everyone in the team. And some people in that high-pressure environment um, don't enjoy it, don't thrive in it. Um, and some people with Eddie allow themselves to take the pressure off and enjoy that high-pressure environment and... It's not going to work for everyone. It is uncomfortable for everyone, but I think uncomfortable is good. I think uncomfortable gets the best out of you. It spurs you on. Um, and it is uncompromising, but I think with Eddie, you sort of, you know exactly what you're getting. Um, you know exactly what the standard is. And there's no confusion on that, which I think is the beauty of that whole environment. Yeah. The other thing that I don't know if you've seen it, but Owen said after he played yesterday was that it's kind of on everyone, Eddie losing his job. It's, it's everyone has contributed to it in some way. Do you all feel that as players, that you feel sad that the guy's lost his job and it's down to performances and all that sort of thing? I know you weren't involved yourself this autumn, but you have been for a few years now. Uh, Absolutely. I think we've all got to look at ourselves and how we can get improvement out of the team. And Eddie's always given space for the players to drive the team in the direction that that he wanted to and they wanted to. So for us as players, I think we've got to look at ourselves as well. We've got to look at where we can get improvements in our game because 
Eddie's not the sole reason that England rugby is, is is not been going as well as it has. In fact, I'd say the opposite. I think he's he's a key pillar in why English rugby has been been so good in the last five, four or five years. So, yes, I think we we, we have to look at our, ourselves as players and, and the reality is, um, as a group of players, we probably haven't been performing the way we'd like to. And unfortunately, it was Eddie who's had to take in who's had to take the flak for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Just a, just a last thought. Um, we're going to get news maybe in the next week or so about who might take over and it, all the mood music seems to be that Steve Borthwick would be the man. He coached you, obviously, at that World Cup 2019. Can you talk to us a bit about the detail that he goes into and what he helped in your game, perhaps? I think I think the thing with Steve is he's incredibly clear. You know exactly where you stand with him. He doesn't sugarcoat anything, which I think is really good as well. He's slightly different to... To Eddie and might not be um, as, as as fiery as Eddie, but he is very clear in in detail and where you stand in the team and what you need to do to get yourself to get yourself even better. So while I think it's upsetting that Eddie's gone, I think it's also a really exciting time for English rugby that we've got Richard Cockrell stepping stepping in at the moment, who is a fantastic coach. Um, even though he's less, I've I've had the pleasure mm-hmm. of, of working with. Um, and then we've got Steve Borthwick as well, who's an incredible coach. Who's obviously everyone's seen the rumours of him stepping up as well. So I think, like I say, while it's disappointing um, Eddie's gone when he has, I think it's also exciting that we've got some incredible coaches um, in this country um, available to step up to. Yeah, enough time to turn it around. I mean, I was chatting to Danny Kerr last week when on a Harlequins call, and he was saying, "Look what Quinns did when they lost their head coach, and one ended up winning the prem." Sometimes it, that chip on your shoulder can release you a bit and you just shot to nothing, you go for it and, I don't know, release the shackles a bit. Absolutely. And, and then you, we know what what can happen at World Cups and form sort of goes out the window. And I think it's important that people understand it's there's plenty of time for this team to improve. Um, all the talents there in the squad, everyone's capable enough of, of, of doing well and winning. Um it's just, like I say, we need to learn the lessons quick. Everyone needs to look at themselves and say, how do we get the most improvement? Because there is still, I think, 10 games left to the, that first World Cup game, maybe uh, one or two less. Um, but Nine, I think. I think yeah, time. five, six nations yeah. and four warm-ups, yeah. But I think, I think that's plenty of time to get a team in the right place to go and perform. And, like you say, at World Cups, anything can happen. And on anyone's day, anyone can win. So, um yeah, it's exciting um, with a new coach, and yeah, by no no means is that that World Cup a, a, a write off now. Yeah, absolutely. And back to Northampton, n- no reason why you can't turn it around yourselves in a week and go and put on a big performance against Munster and beat them, and then you're back on track, aren't you? Absolutely. And I think um, when the odds are against us, I think this team does really well. We saw it at the end of last year where we pretty much had to win six games on the bounce to give ourselves um, a crack at a semi final. And they, these boys enjoyed the pressure of that, um, enjoyed that underdog mentality. And I think we find ourselves in the same position now. So hopefully we can thrive under that. I think it's something the boys are really excited for. Perfect. Well, that's that's been a fascinating chat. Thanks so much, Lewis. And thanks for fronting no up. Problem. And, and all the best for Northampton. And then hope you have a good Christmas and everything else as well. Cheers. You too. Cheers. We'll appreciate that. Station. 
iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Right, so that was fascinating to hear from Lewis Ludlam there on Northampton, but sort of more interestingly perhaps on the, the Eddie Jones situation where he was saying that essentially players feel responsibility for it and Eddie was a brilliant coach and he loved playing with him. Um, and also an interesting comment, Stuart, about public pressure and, and the fact that he thinks that Eddie lost his job because it's kind of the mood swung against him. But it's, it's this weird one, isn't it, where there's been a lot of chatter over the last few days of people who support Eddie saying, oh, it's all the media's fault. It's all us, is it, Stuart? No, it's, it's certainly not. I mean, we don't... If there is any influence, it is anything um, but obvious. You know, you, you have to say... I, Nobody says England have won four Six Nations game in two years and two of those wins were against Italy. The players reluctantly say, OK, five wins out of 12 this season and not just losing games, but the performance is, is, is falling away as we get nearer 2020, 2023. Whereas 2019, England were playing some lovely rugby, but just weren't quite reading a game well. So the progress is actually dipping the wrong way. Uh, the results themselves are poor. So I, I just cannot see that at all. If you look at the action of the England team on the pitch, then it is fully understandable. You would, be, In fact, you would be stunned if you only look at how England play and you look at the depth of talent that they have, you would be stunned if uh, the manager wasn't dismissed. And, you know, that's why for a year or so, I've been persistently saying Jones should go because England have been getting worse. Mm, mm. Well, there's going to be loads more on the Eddie and the Steve Borthwick situation, so keep refreshing your Times app, all our Twitter accounts and all that sort of stuff because there's going to be plenty more to come before Christmas. And I think it's one of those where they need to sort it quickly, don't they, just to, for everyone else's sanity. Yeah. But um, I think let's move on now to the god or goddess of the week, or maybe a devil, we don't know. Who, where where should we start? Should we go with you, Elgin? Where are you going for yours? Well, it's very common these days, very in fashion for teams to have European-specific kits. And when it comes to altern- alternate kits, my opinion is always they are terrible, a consumerist farce, an excuse to get money out of people, unless they look really cool, in which case I will buy one. And <laughs> Toulouse uh, have a lovely kit. Then again, if they put a Toulouse crest on a bin bag, I'd buy it. So yeah. that's fair enough. The Ospreys were sporting their European kit the uh, on Sunday night. An immensely colourful number, which is right up my street, fortunately. It represented a colour from each of the 77 grassroots clubs in the region. So we're talking of uh, regions there and the problems of regional rugby. That was an example where they were trying to pay homage, uh, homage to the uh, 77 grassroots clubs within the, the Nice Swansea Ospreys region. And so uh, as, a, as a sucker for colour, I will be going for the Ospreys European kit. I wonder whether it's one of those that Alan Wynne-Jones puts on his, on his wall when he's retired. The great... Osprey's team of 2022 and their kit. That and the yellow a Wales kit of 2009, perhaps, which <laughs> uh, was a questionable one at the time, but maybe it's growing on me now. Yeah. I'm not sure. I always found it funny, and Bath aren't actually in the Champions Cup this year because we know what they were like last year, but they very often produced a kit that not only was European but had gold lettering as if they'd won it and it's been so long I mean even Stuart Barnes was playing the last time they won anything significant right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you've got to remember 
Italy is part of Europe uh, and Bath regards itself as one of the preeminent Roman cities in this country. Yeah, okay. Therefore, there's a tradition. Bath, Bath is closely linked to Rome and all things imperial. Right, so the gold's fine, fine. All right, so Barnsley, where's your um, God of the Week going? Well, first of all, I I love that. 77 clubs represented. That That's fantastic from the Ospreys. Uh, and when Elgin mentioned that, i got to say, I, I have to, a word for Gloucester, who were not pretty in pink against <laughs> Bordeaux. It was an awful kit. And I, 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 you know, I was trying to file on the whistle and I kept writing cherry and whites and I just couldn't bring myself to talk about Gloucester looking hot pretty. Hot pinks, pink. the hot pinks. The hot pinks. <laughs> they weren't, they were the chilli pinks. Yeah, okay. Um, so that that's uh, a resounding no for Gloucester's kit. For my God of the Week, I'm I'm going north of the border. I know Saracens were upset with their performance, uh, but it takes two to tangle. And I thought Edinburgh were exceptional. And I thought James Rich's captaincy and Luke Crosby at the open side were outstanding. All year, uh, we've been talking about Ben Earl. He has been a dominant personality in the Premiership. He came up against Edinburgh's open side and he got cleaned out. So... Luke Crosby, magnificent, is my God of the Week. And you've given it to someone on the losing side, Stuart. This well, is contrary as always. I had to. <laughs> um, and they I were in there. Consistent, otherwise. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, they were in their kind of. I mean, this is enormously stereotypical. I can already hear Scottish viewers yawning at me, but their kind of iron brew kit, the big orange thing, weren't they, Edinburgh? But um, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for the, the Swansea.com. And it was a, I don't know, watching it on the telly, it was a slightly dour game, but lit up ridiculously so by Anthony Watson with that unbelievable step and go. He's always been a classy player, but that was just that moment that won a game that is that showed his test class, his Lions test class. And there'll be no doubt that he'll be back in the picture come the Six Nations and all that if he stays fit. He's had a hell of a run, hasn't he? But he's he's going to be my God of the Week. So that has been another ruck from the Times and the Sunday Times. Please follow, please subscribe. We'll, we'll probably be the last of the Christmas reindeer updates. I don't know, because we'll, there'll be a couple more pods before Christmas, one around Boxing Day that we'll try and get over to you soon. But for now, that's it. We're going to thaw out. We're going to crack on. There'll be more news of Eddie Jones, Steve Borthwick and everything else. Follow the Times and you'll get all the news as and when it breaks. But for now, that has been The Ruck from The Times and The Sunday Times. And as ever, this episode was edited and produced by the great Alfie Reynolds. 